Hello and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle and today we will be delving into the presidency of General Andrew Jackson, our nation's seventh president. Known as the People's President, he was a war hero, a lawyer, he destroyed the Second Bank of the U.S., instituted policies that resulted in the forced migration of Native Americans, which was also called the Trail of Tears. He founded the Democratic Party and with us today, as always, to delve into the details is our resident history teacher, Jean Antonakis. Jeannie, take it away. Andrew Jackson, all right? He is such an interesting historical figure. His legacy is one that is certainly polarizing. He was not the typical presidential candidate. His early life heavily influenced both his demeanor and the actions he would take as president. Andrew Jackson was born of very humble means. He was born on March 15th, 1767. His parents were Scottish and Irish immigrants who had moved to the Western frontier. His father died shortly before his birth, and his mother had to rely on relatives who happened to live nearby. You know, for women, especially in the colonial era, you did not have options. You, you could not really make a living. Andrew Jackson's family were poor farmers. He had some schooling, was self-taught a bit, but not all that much compared to previous presidents. They lived in the Waxhaws Settlement, during the time of the American Revolution, this area fought fiercely against the British. Andrew Jackson enlisted in the local militia at the age of 13. Too young to fight, he acted as a patriot courier. He and his older brother were actually captured by British soldiers, and the scar on his face is believed to be from his refusal to polish a British officer's boots. So, I mean, here he is, the age of 13, a British officer tells him, polish my boots, and he tells him no. The officer was so infuriated, he drew his sword and slashed Jackson's hand and face. By the age of 14, he was an orphan. His brother and mother both died from illness, during the Revolutionary War. So here he is. He's 14 years old. He's a Revolutionary War veteran and an orphan. So what does he do? He returns briefly to his relatives, has a short stint as a school teacher, and studies law working as an apprentice. He moved to Tennessee and established a rather lucrative law business. But Jackson had his eyes set on something bigger. Jackson is not a refined Southern lawyer. He is immensely proud and protective of his honor. He's a hothead. He's a gambler. He meets and marries Rachel Donaldson Robards. There is one problem. She's already someone else's wife. Rachel Donaldson came from a very prominent Tennessee family. Very unhappy in her first marriage, she separated from her husband and moved back home with her mother, where Jackson happened to be renting a room. They were married shortly after meeting. This story will become important during the election of 1828, when Jackson's rivals attempt to use this against him. 
Jackson purchased a plantation, which becomes known as the Hermitage. At the time of purchase, Jackson owned nine slaves. By the time of his death, that number grew to 150. On the plantation, cotton was the cash crop of choice. It is his plantation and the use of slave labor that allows for Jackson's increase in wealth. Cotton was not an easy crop to grow. It required a large labor force. The invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney made cotton production more lucrative for plantation owners as more cotton could be cleaned faster instead of having to remove each seed by hand. And, you know, each cotton bulb had about 20 seeds, so it was very labor-intensive. If you go to thehermitage.com, there is a good amount of information about Jackson, his home, and his use of slave labor. When it comes to Jackson and slavery, as a Southerner and plantation owner, he politically supported policies that protected slavery and allowed for its expansion. As a slave owner, he profited from the institution. As a slave owner, records show him to be rather harsh. Letters supported the physical punishments of slaves who were insubordinate or who had run away. Jackson went so far as putting out a newspaper ad offering a reward for anyone who captured and lashed, whipped his runaway slave. Jackson, when he became president, brought a number of slaves with him to the White House. There is no proof of Jackson freeing any of his slaves upon his death. At thehermitage.com, they have a number of resources if you want to look into Jackson and the enslaved at his plantation more. They have some names and brief descriptions and images that help to paint a picture of what life was like for those who were enslaved there. Many people know Jackson as a great military officer. He often um, preferred to be called general instead of Mr. President during his presidency. During the War of 1812, Jackson cemented his fame as a war hero. His ability to end the Creek War and force the signing of what would become known as the Treaty of Fort Jackson, where Native American groups were forced to agree to terms that saw them lose millions of acres of ancestral lands. This would not be the last time Jackson would be involved in the removal of Native Americans from their lands, which resulted in further decay of their population, way of life, and culture. Jackson is most well-known for his victory in the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812, a battle that didn't really even need to take place because the terms of the Treaty of Ghent ending the war had already been agreed to, but news of the treaty hadn't reached the United States yet. Jackson briefly served in the Senate and his state of Tennessee nominated him for president in the election of 1824. We discussed this election in our previous podcast on 
John Quincy Adams. There were four major candidates for president. To the surprise of most, Jackson won the popular vote. If you look at it from a historical perspective, it makes sense because he was really the only candidate with national appeal. If you compare John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, they could not have been more different. Adams was incredibly well-educated, well-traveled, having served as a diplomat and secretary of state, the son of a former president, and a family deeply rooted in American history. And here is Andrew Jackson with limited education, a quick temper, known for his duels, a military general and a war hero with really a rags to riches story. John Quincy Adams came in second place, but no candidate won the majority of votes needed in the Electoral College. When this happens, the Constitution stipulates that the election then goes to the House of Representatives. Each state gets one vote. John Quincy Adams won the vote in the House of Representatives, and Jackson became convinced there had been some sort of backroom deal or corrupt bargain, as it became known. Henry Clay, who was the Speaker of the House and another of the four candidates for president in the election, was made Secretary of State by John Quincy Adams. Jackson stormed out of Washington and declared his revenge to run against Adams in 1828, which he did, and he won. The election of 1828 was an ugly one. The Democratic-Republican Party split after the 1824 election. Jackson and his supporters became known as Democrats or Jacksonian Democrats. And Adams and his supporters become briefly known as the New Republicans. Do not mistake that with the Republican Party. That political party will not be created until 1854. Eventually, the New Republicans become known as the Whigs, another short-lived political party. Both supporters of Jackson and Adams circulated wild stories, with some truths, as all wild stories have, in newspapers that attempted to destroy the reputation of their opponent. Adams was often characterized as being an elitist, out of touch with the common man, and Jackson as a volatile, incapable leader, a murderer, using his many past duels as proof. His opponents went so far to use his wife's divorce to call Jackson an adulterer and his wife a bigamist. There was some truth to that one, as the Jacksons had to remarry when they found out their first marriage wasn't legal because her divorce hadn't gone through as they assumed it had. Jackson's campaign posters, many of which you can see um, on the Library of Congress website, all depict him as a supporter of the common man. 
Some states had already removed the property qualifications for voting, which Jackson supported. It led to what we refer to as universal white manhood suffrage. Jackson goes on to win the election of 1828 in a landslide, winning both the popular and electoral college votes. You can go to 270towin.com and see the exact results. Jackson's inauguration was a spectacle. Rachel Jackson had become ill and died prior to Jackson becoming president. Jackson blamed her death on his political opponents and the great distress that their smear campaigns had caused her. Massive, massive crowds of Jackson's supporters came down to Washington and there was an open house at the White House, which resulted in a wild, crowded party in the executive mansion that Jackson actually had to leave and stay at a nearby hotel because it got so crazy. There are a number of eyewitness accounts that describe people standing on the furniture and fine rugs with muddy boots. The quick-thinking staff at the White House actually removed the food and the alcohol to the lawn, and that's how they were finally able to get Jackson's supporters out of the house. As president, Jackson had a number of domestic issues he was known for. One of the things he is known for is something called the spoils system. To the victor goes the spoils. Jackson rewarded his supporters with government jobs. So with the spoil system, it wasn't what you knew, it was who you knew that got you a job. Like the previous six presidents, Jackson had a cabinet, but he rarely met with them. He didn't like them much. Instead, he regularly met with an informal group of advisors in the kitchen of the White House, and they became known as the kitchen cabinet. Jackson used the presidential power of the veto more than any other president before him, more than most of the previous presidents combined, actually. He used the power of veto 12 times. He consistently vetoed bills that would weaken states' rights or power by allowing the federal government to fund various internal improvement projects. One of the first political hurdles of Jackson's presidency would be the Tariff of 1828, or the Tariff of Abominations, as it became called. It was actually passed during the presidency of John Quincy Adams, but went into effect during Jackson's first term. The tariff was passed to protect American wool producers. They needed a market for their goods. If the tariff was not passed, Great Britain could drive down the prices and shut American producers out of the wool market. Now, this time in history, the Industrial Revolution is now alive and well in the United States, not just in Great Britain and various other countries throughout Europe. And so the United States wants to make sure they have a piece of that action. The dispute over this tariff would prove to be the end of the working relationship between Jackson and his vice president, John C. Calhoun, 
who was a Southerner from South Carolina, where the tariff was particularly unpopular. Southerners in particular tended to be anti-tariff. It made British goods more expensive for them to buy, and they feared foreign countries would retaliate by taxing cotton. They argued that no taxes should be placed on northern products. They considered it a tax on the wealthy and elite few. The South wanted free trade. In 1830, while at a dinner celebrating Jefferson Day, which was Thomas Jefferson's birthday, Jackson and Calhoun both made toasts, each taking a clear stance on the debate of whether or not southern states could nullify a federal law. And basically nullifying, they would pass another law saying, you don't have to listen to that. They were in open disagreement. The crisis spurred a writing called Exposition and Protest, which Calhoun, the vice president, had written anonymously, where he outlined the following. One, the federal government was created by the states. So you exist because we allow you to exist. Two, States had the right to null or void any federal law that they felt was unconstitutional. And three, and this was probably the most dangerous of all the ideas, states had the right to secede or leave the union. You have to understand that this crisis was the greatest threat to the union the country had faced since its creation. Further issues were avoided by Jackson's request to Congress to revise the tariff. Senator Henry Clay, architect of the Missouri Compromise, known as the Great Compromiser and the Great Pacificator, worked with Congress to pass the Tariff Act of 1833, which decreased the tariff over a series of nine years. The damage, however, was done between Jackson and his vice president, Calhoun. Calhoun became the first vice president to resign. And when it came time for the election of 1832, Jackson chose his secretary of state, Martin Van Buren, to run as his vice president. Probably the second biggest domestic issue that Jackson is known for is his fight with the Second National Bank. Knowing Jackson's personal feelings against the National Bank, having been burned financially years earlier in his involvement in land speculation, his political stance that the bank itself was unconstitutional, and unlike supporters of the bank who preferred paper money, Jackson wanted hard currency, gold and silver coinage only. Jackson's opponents thought he could be lured into a political trap in an election year. Supporters of the Second National Bank tended to be northern industrialists and merchants. Opponents of the bank tended to be southern, western farmers who blamed the bank for limited money circulation and lack of credit. Jackson's opponents attempted to renew 
the charter for the Second National Bank, even though its current charter was not set to expire for a few more years. He vetoed the bill and fired two secretaries of the Treasury until the third secretary of the Treasury finally agreed to do what Jackson wanted in order to kill the bank. Jackson ensured that no federal money would go to the National Bank. Instead, it would be sent to state banks. These banks became known as pet banks because they were thought to be the favorite of the federal government. With no new federal money going to the National Bank, the bank became bankrupt, in a sense. For Andrew Jackson's opponents, they referred to him as King Andrew I. He used the power of veto, in their opinion, to act as a king. There are a number of really great political cartoons on this time period showing, you know, Jackson and Nicholas Biddle, who was the president of the Second National Bank, or Jackson dressed in full monarch attire. There's some really great ones. The move led to the end of the Second National Bank, but it also led to an economic depression. Many of those state banks were giving out loans for land speculation and didn't have enough hard currency to back the paper money. It led to inflation and to the passage of a new law which required federal land to be purchased with something called specie circular, gold or silver coins only. This economic depression would take place during the presidency of Martin Van Buren and was known as the Panic of 1837. Today, we have Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. He hated paper money. In fact, in his farewell address, he cautioned the American people about its continued use. He advocated for the use of strictly gold and silver coins. In 2016, President Obama proposed the inclusion of women on U.S. currency, and Harriet Tubman was selected to replace Jackson on the $20 bill. Now, this was supposed to happen as of this year, as of 2020, um, but the current Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, you know, recently discussed how it most likely would not be ready until 2024. But Harriet Tubman is slated to replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. The most controversial aspect of Jackson's presidency is, of course, the Indian Removal Act. Continued westward expansion led to increased tensions between white settlers and various Native American groups. At times, these tensions became full-blown wars. Since 1492, Native American groups living on the North American continent were offered two choices, assimilation or annihilation. Since President Jefferson's purchase of the Louisiana Territory, Native American groups who resisted assimilation were offered removal treaties to land or territories. Now, I use that term offered loosely. It was more, you know, 
of a godfather thing. Either your name or, or your brains are going to be on this paper. And so they used these removal treaties to lands or territories further west. At the time of Jackson's presidency, Native American groups living in the southeast, think present-day Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, were having more and more issues with white settlers moving onto Native American ancestral lands. For Jackson, his attitudes towards Native Americans were derogatory, to say the least. He often referred to them as being childlike savages. He grew up in the Western frontier in what was once Native American lands. From an early age, he had heard stories of past conflicts and battles with Native American groups over land. When the War of 1812 ended in 1815, he served as federal Indian commissioner with the goal of moving Native American groups out of desired lands. Jackson resorted to bribes and threats to achieve his goals. He argued it was in the best interest of Native Americans to move them westward. These beliefs and actions would continue during his presidency. Soon after he took office, the Indian Removal Act of 1830 was passed. It allowed the president to negotiate treaties and grant lands west of the Mississippi River to Native American groups whose territories existed within state borders. The federal government would provide assistance to those who agreed to move and the promise, which was not kept, that the federal government would protect their right to live on the new territories. Jackson signed over 60, 60 removal treaties. Some Native American groups were paid to relocate. Other groups waged war, like the Seminoles. The Second and Third Seminole Wars lasted years and cost the federal government millions of dollars. Eventually, the federal government agreed to pay the remaining Seminoles to relocate to new lands. Native American groups were moved west into what was considered unorganized territory. It would not remain unorganized and unpopulated by white settlers for very long. The Cherokee Nation challenged the legality of the act and tried to use legal avenues to protect their land rights. These attempts were unsuccessful and led to what became known as the Trail of Tears. In 1838, Native Americans were forcefully moved west. Conditions were so bad that thousands of men, women, and children died. Jackson's legacy is an important one. It's a rags-to-riches tale, a tale of a man born of poor immigrants in the western frontier, orphaned, by the age of 14, goes on to become a general in the United States Army and president of the United States. His policies and influence are so important 
his presidency ushers in what historians refer to as the age of Jackson. He was a man fiercely protective of his honor and was quick to go after those he perceived as enemies. He was celebrated as a supporter of the common man. His ownership of slaves, the way he treated his slaves, his actions towards Native Americans certainly make his place in American history a controversial one. After his presidency, his vice president, Martin Van Buren, serves one term as president, and Jackson is an important advisor to him. He returned to his plantation, the Hermitage, and died in June of 1845. His funeral was attended by thousands, even his pet parrot, who had to be removed because of all the cussing it did. And if you know anything about Andrew Jackson, that also makes sense. On his tomb, he is referred to as General Andrew Jackson, a title he preferred to be called even during his presidency. So there you have it, Andrew Jackson. He's on the 20, even though he hated paper money. (laughs) Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com. And subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.